All right, let's go ahead and get started. I will pray for us, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're so appreciative of all that you, you provide for us, all that you do for us as your children. Um, thankful that you, you woke us up this morning. You, you provide us food and shelter in the cold. And Lord, we're, we're most thankful and appreciative this morning for your son, Jesus, whom through our, our faith in him we can have new life, eternal life. We can have flourishing here on this earth. We can have peace, contentment, and we pray that you would grow those things in us this morning. Pray that as we um, consider your, your word in the book of Acts and we think about the, the Holy Spirit and his, his work and ministry in Acts, that you would um, give us clarity, give us greater knowledge of your word, greater understanding of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're moving on to chapter 3 of the book, The Mission of the Triune God, which is what we've been using to be kind of our study through the theology of Acts. And today the focus will be on God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and His role in the narrative account of Acts. And we will see what, what theological conclusions we can make regarding the Spirit as we study His role, as we study His, his function and acts. And so it's, I think it's good to remember what we've seen so far. And what we've seen so far in the study is that the, the principal theme, the, the foundational theme or, or theological truth that all other themes, all other, other events flow out from, in the story is the truth of, of God the Father planning and orchestrating all things to occur. And that's plan, that, that's plan's orchestration occurs through the sending and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. This is what we, we studied last week. We saw how God's plan is connected to Jesus' sacrificial death, his, his resurrection and ascension into heaven where he's He's presently reigning and ruling over all. And the way that we see Jesus' rule and reign and work enacted in the book of Acts is what we're going to be thinking about today. Because we see Jesus' rule, reign, His work is enacted through the work of His Spirit, through the sending of the Spirit, which is the, the same Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Acts, we get a recounting from Luke of the work of the Spirit in history, which is, this is key, it's, it's extremely important in our developing and crafting our theology, our, our, our thinking about the Holy Spirit. Schreiner points out in the introduction that, that other literature, so the other books in the New Testament, interprets the work of the Spirit, but it is Acts that primarily recounts the Spirit's work in history and, and salvation history. And thus, the Spirit plays a vital role in Acts, and Acts plays a vital role in our understanding of the Spirit and His role in God's plan of salvation. And because of the Spirit's vital role in Acts, it shouldn't surprise us that, that many, many um, theologians 
think, think of it that the, that the work of the Spirit is actually the, the main theme, the, the big idea in the book of Acts. It's a very common way to read the, the, the narrative of Acts. But as we've seen throughout the book, central to, to Schreiner's thesis is to, to truly understand and develop a theology of Acts, one must read Acts as the well-ordered, logically consistent, logically coherent narrative that Luke produced. And central to this narrative is that all theological themes are, are logically consistent with one another, logically connected with each other. They're, they're dependent upon each other in certain ways. So the theme of the, the work and ministry of the Spirit logically comes after or under the Father's plan of salvation and the Son's life, work, and, and reign in the ascension. And we can see this, as we've seen throughout Acts so far, in a number of ways. First, Jesus speaks of the Spirit as the Father's promise, as a promise of the Father. So Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. We read, and while staying with them, he, that is Jesus, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the, the, the sending of the Spirit is from the promise of the Father. The, the sending was a part of the Father's plan, a, a part of the, the Father's design. And in this way, we can say the Spirit enacts God's plan, just like we saw last week that um, the sending of the Son and the Son's resurrection and ascension was a part of God's plan. Historically, the church has confessed that the Spirit um, spirates a very interesting word, spirates from both the Father and the Son. It's a really old term that means something like breathed out. It's, the Spirit is breathed out from the Father and the Son. The Spirit then, as we will see in the narrative Acts, the, the Spirit, another way to think about this, proceeds from the divine will of the Father. He, he's, he's breathed out. Again, we saw this last week, how the, how the mission of the triune God the, the, a mission, the mission to enact uh, the plan of salvation, to create a, a new covenant people for himself, that mission actually provides us the language to speak of how the persons of the Trinity re relate to one another and are distinct from one another, even as they all are one God. And this week, the focus is on the Spirit proceeding from, the Spirit being breathed out by God the Father and God the Son. And it's that, that last phrase, the Spirit also proceeds from God the Son, if you know your church history, has created a massive amount of historic controversy. This was fundamental to the split of the Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. The Eastern Orthodox still believe the Spirit only proceeds from the Father and not the Son. The Western Church, including Protestants, our heritage, our tradition believes the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
And we see this in the, the mission of the Trinity. As we saw clearly last week, the ascent of Christ must precede the arrival of the Spirit. The Spirit descended after the ascension and exaltation of Christ, who, 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 who sends the Spirit. So notice, and this is again key just to our, the way we, we speak as Christians, key to our, to our theological vocabulary and understanding, the work of the Spirit can't be separated from the one who bestows the Spirit. The work of the Spirit can't be separated from the one who gives the Spirit. Schreiner hopefully points out for us places like in, in Isaiah 11, verse 2, and Isaiah 42, chapter, I mean, chapter 42, verse 1, that the Old Testament promised that the, the future king from David's line would have the Spirit, would have the Spirit. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the amazing thing we see as the, the story develops and, and our Lord ascends to His throne in heaven is that he, he sends the Spirit to now rest on His people as it rested on Him in His earthly ministry. And so this is why Schreiner argues that, that the Spirit, more than the, the, the other persons of the Trinity, why the Spirit receives so much attention in, in space in the book of Acts. Because it is the Spirit that, that enacts salvation and enacts this release and liberty of the captives, to use the language of Luke 4. So, following the logical narrative order, we see that the Spirit is central in Acts, but, but the Father's plan is prior, and so is Christ's work, Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation. So, this is just giving us um, tools to put the puzzle pieces together of how we, we put together the narrative, but also our, our, understand, our theological understanding of the Trinity. But it leaves us with a question. If the Spirit is the one whom enacts salvation, causes liberty, and gives new life to, to the spiritually dead, how do we see this work? How does this work in the book of Acts? How does this play out in the story of Acts? And that's really what the rest of the chapter is framed around or seeks to answer that. And the way Schreiner frames this is to think about the empowering of the Spirit in Acts by looking at three distinct but, but related facets or, or perspectives. To use the, the theological terms, we see the Spirit's role in Acts is soteriological, ecclesiological, and, and missiological. Which soteriological just meaning that the, the Spirit is essential in salvation and applying the work of Christ to the believer. Ecclesia, ecclesiological meaning pertaining to the church, pertaining to, to the new covenant community as the Spirit creates a new covenant people at Pentecost and, and then beyond. And finally, missiological, 
meaning that the Spirit empowers and propels His people to, to testify and to witness of Christ to the world. He gives them power to, to go on mission, to be on mission. So we're going to just take these in turn for the rest of our time. So let's first think about the, the Spirit and soteriology in Acts, or the Spirit and salvation. I'll pause, though. Any comments, questions so far? That's right, and that's what we get to see in, in Acts. Rob first, then Blake. Maybe, maybe you want to go before Rob. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 not familiar with that. Her, I'm sure it exists. There's a lot of heresies. That's one thing I know. Um, but like I said, it's a rabbit trail. It is a rabbit trail. <clears throat> it isn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different, I would say, heresies and misunderstandings direct related to this and the relationships um, between the persons. Um, but we can chase that rabbit trail later if you want. Okay. Over coffee, okay. <laughs> so let's think about the, the spirit and salvation. And the first thing to say is that many primarily and sometimes only think about the role and work of the spirit and acts in, in the mission of the Spirit, or, or the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is no doubt true that the mission is, is I mean, the, the Spirit is central to the mission of the church. But Luke starts with something that must come before mission when thinking about the Spirit, and that is the Spirit's restoration, renewal, cleansing, liberating, and transforming work. In short, we can say Luke starts with the role the Spirit plays in salvation first. And we see this in a rather simple way in the book of Acts. What we find is that the Spirit is the, the, the presence of God, and therefore the, the Spirit bestows the salvation of God on His people. The way theologians have talked about this historically is that the Spirit applies salvation. The Spirit applies salvation. So we can define that as the Spirit being an, the, an agent of salvation who gives Christ and all the redemptive blessings, so, so forgiveness, restoration, making us pure, justification, all of those redemptive blessings are applied to us, applied to Christians by the work of the Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's often been stated that the Spirit applies for the Christian, the Spirit applies for the Christian what Christ has accomplished. It's a simple way to think about it. The Spirit applies what Christ has accomplished. So in that sense, without the Spirit's agency in salvation, all that Christ has accomplished would be for nothing. It wouldn't be effectual, it wouldn't be applied to the Christian. It would be applied to nobody unless there was the sending of the Spirit to indwell the people of God. That's why John Calvin would say the Holy Spirit is the bond which Christ effectually united, united us to Himself. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually united us to Himself. So our union with Christ, all the benefits of His work, 
all the benefits of what he accomplished in his, in his life and his death, his resurrection, is applied to believer, believers by the Spirit, by the Spirit's work in salvation. Thus, we can say the Spirit is absolutely crucial in our understanding of salvation. And here's the key with, with the book of Acts. This theological truth about the Spirit's role in salvation springs forth from what we see in the Bible, in the narrative itself in Acts. In Acts 2, we, we've, we've gone to this part every lesson, maybe the rest of the lessons too. Acts 2, Peter's sermon, right after Pentecost, very important sermon. We see in Acts 2.21, which is quoting Joel 2.32, that the outpouring of the Spirit leads people to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. So notice the, the progression and logic of Luke and Acts. Salvation, that is forgiveness of sins, being, being reconciled to God, being justified by, by Christ's work on the cross, that salvation comes by a means of confessing Christ. But this comes about only when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Acts, which is Acts 2.17. So we can only confess Christ and experience salvation when the Spirit applies it to us, when the Spirit is poured out onto humanity or on our flesh. In some way, we can say, based on this text, that the Spirit, which is poured out after Christ is exalted in heaven, the Spirit draws people to Jesus and joins them to Him. Draws people to Jesus and then joins, unites believers in Christ. So we could say, as theologians have said, applies salvation to the believer. That's what the Spirit is doing. And again, this is a massively important concept in our, in our theology, but it's right there for us. It's, it's, it's coming from what we see in Acts. And it ties closely to the, to the missional realities of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about later. But they, they are distinct it's really important that we hold this distinction up. The Spirit's role in salvation and the Spirit's role in mission. They're not the same thing. And here's why they must be distinct from each other. Salvation logically comes before mission. Schreiner says people can't go out, mission, until they, they come in. Salvation. Meaning you can't go proclaim the gospel that saves until you yourself are saved. So the logic is salvation must come before the mission of the church. And that is again what we see in the, the narrative. The Spirit must fall on the apostles before their mission begins to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this initial commission from Jesus comes from... Uh, in, in Luke Acts, in the book of Luke. So you can turn there, Luke chapter 24. I really wish our New Testaments had Luke and Acts right next to each other. That would make sense to me. This would be my second study where I think we should just revamp the whole Bible, so maybe I don't. We see... So we're, we're at Luke 24, verse 49. We see Jesus tell his disciples there, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, 
but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. So the disciples, the, the apostles, are to wait in the city, Jerusalem, until they receive power. The promise of the Father here, I think, is clearly referring to the promise of the coming and, and the indwelling of the Spirit. We know this from, from right there in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, but also from that language of power from on high. It's a very important phrase Jesus is using. You can underline that if you're, you're the underlining type. It's a direct reference to Isaiah 32, 15, which says, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And then the rest of, of Isaiah 32, 15 through, through 20, the rest of these verses talk about the restoration of Israel, which is important. So Pentecost, which we see in Acts 2, which is what, what Jesus is referring to here in, in Luke 24, Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit from on high then, is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 32, 15. And Schreiner points out, Another way to talk about the restoration of something, which is what we see in Isaiah 32, 32 verses 15 through 20, the restoration of Israel, another way that we can talk about the restoration of something is the salvation of something, is the word salvation. So we see this, I think, in our Old Testament. It's all over the place. Israel, the old covenant people of God, is always meant to be a, a blessing to the nations. They, they were to be, to be restored new community. But to do so, they needed the cleansing. They needed the empowering presence of the Spirit. They needed forgiveness of their sins. They needed a, a new heart. This is what we see all over the prophecies or, or the prophets in the Old Testament. It's exactly what Isaiah 32 is saying. They needed the, the, the law of God written on their hearts, as we, as we read in Jeremiah 31. So if we go back to Luke 24, Luke 24, 49, the disciples needed to wait to, to the disciples needed to wait in Jerusalem because what they needed was the pouring out of the Spirit of God so that they could experience these blessings, these salvation blessings. So the work of Christ could be a, would be applied to their life. And then and only then would they be then ready to take the mission or ready to go on mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you see how salvation, restoration must come before the mission of proclaiming the gospel. And we see the same concept of Jesus' disciples being the restored Israel. There's one way you can think about it, the, the, the fulfillment of this Isaiah 32 promise. Another place we can see that is not just in the Gospel of Luke, but in Acts, and in no, no surprise, in the event of, at Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts. And we can see this around the images surrounding the Spirit's coming at Pentecost, which is indicated as, as the presence of God coming upon His people. So Schreiner uses the language that Pentecost indicates that, that Jesus' disciples are the restored Israel and the, the new temple community. 
That's, that's his language for, for what he's talking about. It simply means that the, the Spirit restores and saves by bringing the presence of God to earth by now indwelling Christians. Being the, the you can think of it as the new temple where his presence dwells on earth and now happens inside of Christians, inside of believers. And trying to argue is we can see the saving presence of God by the images that occur at Pentecost. So wind and fire, very important, wind and fire descend on the disciples when the Spirit is poured out, indicating how the, the people of God have now re replaced the temple, so to speak, as where the, the presence of God resides. So wind in the Old Testament often refers to God's presence, or, or literally His, His Spirit. It's actually the same Hebrew word we use for both, wind and spirit. So we, we see then in the very beginning of the Scriptures that the Spirit, wind, gave life, breathed breath into human beings. As we fast forward in the Old Testament, there's the, the glory cloud, which is, which is wind, would fill the temple and, and tabernacle, right? Indicating for us what? God's presence. And it's important to note that in the Old Testament, this is going to come up in a little bit when we talk about the church, that, that in the Old Testament, the presence of God is what established His people. So in general, we can say that the wind indicates the, the sovereign and, and active work of God and, and presence of God that, that forms a covenant community. Fire also points to the presence of God in the temple. God appears in fire to Moses, right, in the burning bush. A, a pillar of fire at night to the wilderness generation indicates God's presence, God's leading, Fire burned inside the temple and tabernacle, indi again indicating God's presence. Fire also indicates judgment in the Old Testament, the judgment of God's presence. So think of uh, oh, Leviticus 10, what are their names? The two guys getting false worship. Someone help me. Nadab and Abihu, thank you. Um, all right, they give unauthorized worship for God. The fire of the Lord kills them. The wrath of the Lord through the presence of fire is judgment upon them. But here's the point for both wind and fire. They indicate in the scriptures God's presence. So when the fire of the Lord came down, and we read in Acts 2 that it rested upon the people of God, and, and we read that the rushing wind filled the entire house they were sitting so that's, that's direct Acts 2, verses 1 through 3. That's what happened. I think our minds should then be immediately brought to the images that we see throughout Scripture that indicate to us God's presence and the transformational things that occur in, in the presence of God. The very Spirit of God now indwells God's people. It's resting upon the people of God. It's not the fire is no longer consuming the people. It's not... It's not destroying the people, but it's resting on top of the people, indicating peace, the peace that we have with God through Christ and the sending of the Spirit. So it's applying, the Spirit is applying the salvation won for them by Christ. 
So we see that the, the Spirit's empowering that Jesus told the disciples to wait on, the power they were to receive before going on their mission, that power is the presence of the Spirit of God and dwelling them, giving them renewal, new birth, regenerating them, causing, causing restoration. Put simply, shorthand, we see the Spirit apply what? Salvation, yes. Schreiner writes, though the apostles believed in Jesus before, the new covenant promises are applied at Pentecost. The Spirit re remakes them. He renews their hearts before they are to go out to the ends of the earth. So I'll stop here for any questions, comments. Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly what he's describing here as what is being or the, the mechanism causing the application of salvation. So you, I think you're right on. It's a new, we're new creations um, through the work of the Spirit. He doesn't directly address it, which I wish he kind of did. <laughs> I'm not trying to unravel the sweater here. I'm just curious. No, yeah. Sort of a broader. Yeah. Um, I thought, I've thought about it quite a little bit this week. Um, it's just not in the text, but. I thought someone might ask this question. It's a good question. Um, and now I can't remember my answers. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about how I, I articulate this within my own, within my, within my own mind, my own system. And it's, I think I would focus on the uniqueness of the moment in salvation history of the Spirit's coming. Um, and especially when we get to like the, the Gentiles, uh, I can't, you just talked about it, what was the verse? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I'm being very unhelpful here, which is frustrating, <laughs> but I, nothing, is, nothing is coming to my mind that is helpful. But Tom, you're going to help me out. The baptism of John was a promise of a coming of the new believer. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's similar how Shriner does kind of just touch on the faith of the disciples before Pentecost, where they clearly had a, like your Peter's confession, they had a, a faith in Jesus, and yet it's different than uh, the experience of salvation after Pentecost um, and the the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Um, but I, that's, where I, that's where I wanted to focus in on kind of the, it's a non-replicable, like it's a unique thing that happened in that specific time because of the nature of Jesus' coming and then his eventual death resurrection. Um, when you say it was a unique time, are you talking about Pentecost itself? The whole period of Christ's coming, his birth, that whole period is kind of a, a a bridge between two eras is what I would say. Yes. Sorry, John. I'll, I'll, I can think about that more and maybe get back with you. But. Well, let's go to the to the the Holy Spirit in the church. Because, oh no, can, I would say no. But I might have differences with you about the indwelling nature of the old, the Spirit in the Old Testament. The indwelling is just, it's still 
Yeah. But I, I do think we can say there's a difference after Pentecost. Blake Johnson. Yeah, it would be what are those new things is what he's arguing. He's the application of salvation kind of has to come after the Spirit in the way we would understand it. Yeah. Well, I think that's why he's using a bunch of different words. And I'm saying shorthand of salvation, but purification, redemption, justification. Um, might be unhelpful by me to just say shorthand salvation. It is a more nuanced than, than that word might lend itself. But we're going to get into this a little bit more. This, this, that same issue is going to come up with the establishment of the church because the same controversy exists with covenantal and dispensational people um, on this issue because it's the spirit that, that assembles, shapes, strengthens the new covenant community of faith, which, which is the church. Now, I think this is probably one of the more technical parts of the book. Um, as Schreiner goes into some de- detail about the fulfillment of the festival pilgrimage feasts um, in, in the book of Acts and how they tie to the Spirit's coming and establishment of the New Covenant community. So there is, there, he's making really important arguments, but they're, they're extremely technical. I'm going to try to give a big picture uh, what, he's, what he's arguing for and not get lost in the weeds of, of his technical argument, but we may have to get into some weeds. But, but the big idea is that in Acts, the emphasis on the Spirit's work is not so much on, on the individual experience of the Spirit saving people, but on the corporate reception and the corporate creation of the Spirit. So God is, is saving a people for Himself, a, a corporate body of individuals. Of course, technically, that, that group of people, the, the church is made up of individuals who are saved. But the emphasis is, in Acts is on the corporate aspect the corporate aspect, so the, the, the church collective. And this is really the pattern we see throughout the whole of the scriptures. When, when we think of the old covenant people of God, what we see in Luke's, Luke Acts is very similar in how it's given to us. So God saved a people, the Israelites, in, the, in Exodus by the, the blood of the Passover, and He established His covenant with them at Mount Sinai with the giving of His law, the giving of His written law, the Torah. And the function of the saving and covenant establishing action in Exodus is that it forms a community of people called Israel, a corporate community. We see the same pattern happen in Luke Acts. Jesus redeemed a people by His blood, and the Spirit applies the law, the Torah, and writes it on the hearts of the people. So we no longer have the law on tablets of stone, but it's written on the hearts of believers. And these actions forms a new covenant community, the church. Now, Shriner argues that we can find this connection of the old covenant community, Israel, and the church in the pilgrimage feasts of Israel, and the events they correspond to, and Jesus' fulfillment of these events and these feasts. So Israel had, or, or Shriner points out, three of the Israelite feasts, Passover, Pentecost and the, the Feast of Booths, and they each correspond to an event in Israel's history. So Passover is the, the Exodus. Pentecost is, 
is correlated to Sinai and the giving of the law. So we could say that the establishment of the Old Covenant community. And booths is uh, the, the wilderness wanderings, the, the wilderness generations with the tabernacle. And in Acts, we see a prolonged and specific focus on the Feast of Pentecost. In Greek, Pentecost means, means 50, and it follows the, the historical account of Exodus 19 of Israel's arrival at Sinai 50 days after the Passover. But remember, it's really key for us to understand what happened at Sinai, for us to understand what Luke's doing with bringing or, or focusing on Pentecost. Because God constitutes the Old Covenant people of God formally with the giving of the, the Ten Commandments, with the giving of the law. The Spirit coming, so the Holy Spirit coming on that festival that, that commemorates that event gives us a massive clue that the Spirit's coming is, is, a, is a fulfillment of Sinai and, and reconstitutes the people of God or, or establishes a new covenant community. Right? Do you see, do you see the, 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 the role of the Spirit's coming, establishing a community of people, the church as a fulfillment of the Sinai community that was, that was constituted at Sinai, at the Old Covenant community. It's important because it really proves to us that, that the promises given to the nation of Israel, the promises given to, to ethnic Jews in the Old Covenant, are fulfilled with the coming of Christ in the Spirit and the establishment of the New Covenant community. So that goes against a very prominent system of reading the Bible. Um, but we also see in Pentecost that it is a festival which exiles of Israel gather together. So the kind of the, the exiles that were uh, taken away from the center of Jerusalem, so dispersed throughout other nations, are brought together, which Shrana argues further illustrates to us the, the ecclesiological function of the Spirit, the, the church um, forming function of the Spirit. We see in Acts 2, verses 9 through 11, that people are visiting from diverse regions, from the east, west, north, and south. It's, a, it's an echoing back, you could even say a fulfillment of Zephaniah 3.20. The ingathering and reconstitution of God's people is occurring when the Spirit comes at Pentecost against Showing how, how, again, it's showing for us how, how the church is, is form, or how the Spirit is forming the church. Now, I'd say it's even more fully realized in Acts 10 with the inclusion of the Gentiles and the inclusion of, of all tongues, tribes, and nations, a blessing to all nations. One of the most obvious ways that we see the connection between Pentecost and Sinai is that the people gathered at Pentecost. Who, who receive the Spirit, they devote themselves to teaching, to, to fellowship with one another, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to this, to this radical, really radical generosity. They give up their own possessions for the sake of the poor. These descriptions mirror for us, this is what, they mirror for us what the Torah community, so what the, the old covenant people were called to be and called to do. They are acting then like true Torah people, law of God people. You could call them Bible people. Doing God's law as if they had it written on their heart. So think of the year of Jubilee, Deuteronomy 15, verses 
1 through 4. With the Old Covenant, law of God caused people to cancel debts and not have any poor among them on a certain year and a certain date. Luke tells us the people who heard Peter's sermon in Acts 2, the New Covenant community, the church, we see the church distribute their, their resources to provide for the needy so that they had no poor among them. It's as if the, the, they are the true Torah community, the true Old Covenant people. So in this way we can see the Spirit's work of the writing of the law of God on those whom He indwells, on their hearts. And they, them being the, the new covenant community, and dwelt by the Spirit, live in light of that. They are now um, f- obedient to the law written on their hearts. So this is a big idea for us to take away, is Luke, and in writing Acts, is recounting the events at Pentecost, and showing the, the parallels with Sinai, in the establishment of the Old Covenant community. So the coming of the Spirit then is an establishment of the New Covenant community. And the Spirit thus is, is fundamental to the establishment of the church. That's really the, the, the big idea that we see um, of the role of the Spirit in the establishment of the church in Acts. Finally, we, we, we have a little bit of time left, but I think we can get through this. The the most prominent role or feature we see the Spirit play in Acts is the, the, the role of the Spirit in the mission of the church, or the, the spread of the gospel and expansion of the kingdom. Right, this is the mission we saw back with, with Acts 1.8, where Jesus gives his, his disciples, but you will receive power, important word, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So notice that the Spirit gives the apostles, gives all Christians power. And we see this power of the Spirit primarily, as we, as we look at through the book of Acts, primarily through the witness of the apostles as they, they prophesy, they declare God's message of salva- salvation, they declare the gospel. So, as we just saw, the Spirit not only saves or, or applies the salvation of Christ one on the cross to believers, and not only does the Spirit establish the church, but the Spirit also empowers the church to take the gospel to the ends of the nations for what you could call cross-cultural missions, evangelism. So we can say that the, the Spirit's power in the believer's life in the book of Acts is compelling his witnesses to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly then what unfolds on the pages of Acts. The Spirit performs signs and wonders through Philip in Samaria, right? Direct what we saw in, in Acts 1.8. We see it play out in Acts 8. The Spirit empowers Philip to take the gospel to Samaria. The Spirit directed Philip again to the Ethiopian eunuch, whom got saved and then baptized before returning to his homeland in a far-off country, to in the ends of the earth. The Spirit led Peter to Cornelius. The Spirit confirmed Cornelius' stat- status as a, a truly regenerate believer as a Gentile. The Spirit makes a decision 
at the Jerusalem Council about the Gentiles' acceptance into the church, into the people of God. So Acts 15, 28, really important verse. Reads, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit, interesting phrase, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So notice that it's the Spirit in, in, in concert with the apostles who decide Gentiles need not be burdened by Jewish law to be included in the people of God, in, in the church. The Spirit propels Paul to the nations as he proclaims the gospel, and he welcomes Gentiles into the church. So this is all just recounting what I'm doing here, just recounting the power that we see the Spirit give his disciples, give the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The earth. That's the, that is the, the power that we see. But it doesn't answer the question, what exactly is the power? So what exactly happens? The Greek word used here is, is um, where we get our word dynamite. It's an extremely explosive force. That's, that's what we're seeing in, in the book of Acts with the Spirit's power that he gives the people of God. And we know it's not a power of like, a, like an earthly army with the ranks of thousands and thousands of chariots and, and horses. Now what we see is that the Spirit's power in Acts always coincides with the word and deed ministries of the apostles. So these ministries of, of the word, ministries of, the, of, of deed, they testify, they testify to the new life found in Jesus. You could just say they testify to the gospel. So that is the power of the Spirit. It coincides with the proclamation and the deeds of the gospel. To see some of these deed ministries, think of the apostles' miraculous signs dispersed throughout the book. Acts 4-7, Peter heals a lame man, and the religious leaders ask, by what power, by what power or by what name did you do this? It's by the power of the, the Holy Spirit. This is the power that, the deed power that we see in Acts. Or Stephen is described as being full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. These are the, the sign and deed-based ministries of the apostles that were to signify, to be a sign of salvation being found in Christ alone, the, the coming of the gospel. But we also see the power of the Spirit give the apostles in the word-based ministry of the apostles, so the proclamation of the gospel, and it's primarily found in this idea of boldness. You can even just think of it as confidence in the gospel. But boldness is a massive theme in Acts, like very, very prominent. Um, it's almost as boldness and the Spirit's power are, are interwoven. That is the power that, that comes upon the believer to confidently proclaim the gospel. Peter in Acts 2.29 he, he confidently proclaims of the Messiah's resurrection. The, the apostles specifically pray for more boldness in the face of persecution. They're immediately answered. They get boldness and keep proclaiming the gospel. Very early in Paul's gospel ministry, in Acts 9.27, we read that, that Barnabas took him, that is Paul, he, he brought him to the apostles 
and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas, in their first missionary journey, speak boldly in Antioch and Iconium of the gospel. Ephesus, Paul enters the synagogue. It says, we read, he speaks boldly about the kingdom of God. It's Acts 19.8 or Acts 28.31. Um, he declared Christ with boldness when he speaks to Agrippa in Acts 26.26. 26. Paul speaks boldly to Agrippa. So just note it, there's a big connection between the Spirit's power and the word ministries of the apostles is boldness, is confidence. And the really amazing thing is, I think, just to bring it home for us, is that all believers in all generations, so not just the church in Acts, but the church today, us, us sitting in this room, have the same Spirit indwelling us. We have the, that same power. We have that same power indwelling us, and we have, we have the same mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to, to, to boldly proclaim, to be confident in our proclamation of the truth. Trina argues that, that, that the story of God's plan of salvation doesn't stop in Acts 28, right? We know that because we, we exist as Christians right now. It continues in those who confess Jesus as Lord. It continues then in the church, which means we have the power of the Spirit indwelling us so that we can experience the Spirit's power. We can be bold and confident in our proclamation of the gospel. I think this is one of the biggest uh, encouragements when we read the book of Acts. It's, it's something that I think we, we must take away in, in our study of Acts. It's not just some relic of history in the past, but it's actually something we're, we're participating in through the power of the Spirit that indwells us. So that's, we're, we're out of time, so that's all I have for us today. We can, I can have maybe one question, comment. So I made the, the covenantal and dispensational people mad, which is good. <laughs> Next week we'll talk about uh, the Word of God, which we talked a, lot, a little bit about uh, uh, a previous week, but we're going to specifically talk about the Word of God and the, the function of the Word of God in the book of Acts. So you guys are dismissed. <laughs>